I'd ask if you could please stand out of reverence uh, for the word of the Lord this morning as we read uh, our passage. And, uh, and again, my, my verse that I'm focusing on is, is just Genesis uh, 20, uh, or sorry, Exodus 20:13. But, uh, but I'm going to read um, the entirety of, of Genesis 21 through 17, the whole of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above, sorry, likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Holy God, as we approach your moral law, Lord, we do so with fear and trembling, realizing that we have not kept it. We have not kept any of it. Lord, I pray that as we consider this sixth commandment, the, the prohibition of murder, Lord, help us to see that prior to our conversion, that we were all characterized by murder. Lord, help us to see that even as we are regenerate, that we too easily commit murder in our hearts. Lord, I pray that all of us would flee to Christ, who though he was completely holy, completely innocent, that though he loved you, Heavenly Father, perfectly and perfectly now loved his neighbor as himself, Lord, he was convicted as a murderer in our place as he bore our iniquity, all the murder of our hearts. Our Lord Jesus bore as he was killed, as he was murdered because of our murder. Help us as we consider these things to continue to turn from murder in our hearts and from all wickedness and to turn in faith and repentance to Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone for our salvation. For we pray this in his holy name. 
Amen. We live in dangerous times. The 20th century was by far the bloodiest on record, and that is even without even considering war. There were over 6 million Jews killed by the Nazis. Over 110 million killed during communist revolutions, mainly in Eastern Europe and China. And so far, the 21st century doesn't look a whole lot better. As we hear of genocides that are taking place in, in parts of the world, and as Christians are facing the brunt of much of this, closer to home, there were approximately 17,000 murders in 2017 just in the United States. And though the numbers were lower in 2018, 2019 shows a trend back towards those kinds of numbers. There have been over 300 mass shootings in the U.S. just this year alone. Well, how would you feel sitting in the middle of a room full of murderers? How would you sleep at night knowing that your home is full of murderers? Well, I have some scary news for you. You are surrounded by murderers at this very moment. When you go to sleep, there are murderers in your house. There is a murderer in your bed. Every single person in this room is a murderer. According to the biblical standard, according to God's moral law, you are a murderer. Like several of the commandments that we've seen already, it's easy to gloss over the Sixth Commandment and to consider yourself innocent. However, more careful study and more searching self-examination will once again reveal your guilt. Once again, with this commandment, the most wicked sin is explicitly forbidden as it condemns all sins in that category, as Thomas Colquhoun explains in his treatise on Law and Gospel. Where great sins are expressly forbidden, all the lesser sins of that sort are forbidden. And they are prohibited under the names of the grosser sins in order to render them the more detestable and horrible in our view. As also to show us how abominable even the very least of them is in the sight of an infinitely holy and righteous God. In our studies of Genesis, we, we spoke about how it was not every single species of every animal that was represented on the ark, but, every, but pairs of each kind. There was one pair of the dog kind, one pair of the python kind, one pair of the parrot kind, and so on. A house cat is of the same kind as a lion. Remember Douglas Copeland saying that if cats were double the size they are now, they'd probably be illegal. But he said if dogs were even three times as big as they are now, they'd still be good friends. Sorry for all you cat lovers out there. But I want to ask you, what would happen if your sins were left uncontrolled? What would happen if your sins were to grow twice the size of what they are now? 
Now, there are sins that are prohibited in the sixth commandment, sins of the same kind as murder, sins that you haven't even considered, sins that you commit every single day. So first, let's consider the sins that are forbidden in the sixth commandment. Well, we'll start with the obvious. It says, you shall not commit murder, Exodus 20.13. And though all the sins in that category are wicked, actually taking someone's life is the most heinous. Murder is the first sin that we see after Adam's sin in the garden. As his firstborn son, the wicked Cain, kills the righteous Abel. Adam's secondborn son in cold blood. And Adam's, or sorry, Abel's blood called out for justice. And Cain was punished for his crime, cursed from the ground, and it alienated from the face of God. Murder is from the devil, for he was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44. I don't think anyone in this room has committed cold-blooded murder. It's safe to say that, that no one here has gone out of their way to take someone's life in a fit of anger or a fit of jealousy. Now, I've known two murderers in my day, two men who had killed someone in cold blood, and, and both were, I knew them both during the same period of time. And most of you know my testimony, so you would think as, as I was in basically a gang that this was from back in my teens, but it wasn't. It wasn't until I was in seminary in Toronto. And the first was a man that, that I met in this, this inner city church that I was attending. And he showed up during an, an evening service and, and we became friends. And it was just so clear that he was under the, the heavy burden of guilt. And, and so as, as I got to know him and tried to minister the gospel to him, he, he, to, to him, he told me of his crime. He, he, he told me that, that, that he had, had killed a man in cold blood. And that he had been convicted and, and gone to prison for, for a lesser crime. And, and so I tried to minister the gospel to him, but he would not turn to the Lord for forgiveness. Instead, he tried to drown his guilt in rubbing alcohol. He, he would drink half a bottle of rubbing alcohol every morning, even before he got out of bed. I remember trying to talk to him one day when he was literally blind drunk. He, the alcohol had so incapacitated him that he couldn't see. But what was really incapacitating him more than the alcohol was his guilt. His guilt that he had not dealt with before God. But the second murder is... And the third murder really is, is even more shocking. One of my housemates, then a seminary student, was engaged to a woman from our church. And this couple seemed so sweet together. But a few years later, a friend contacted me to tell me that my friend's housewife had drowned in the bathtub along with their unborn child. Then I found out that my housemate had been charged with their murder of drugging them, drugging his wife, and killing her and their child. And it came out that he was in an adulterous relationship with a, with a woman in the church that he was pastoring. Yes, this man was actually a pastor. And his case has just gone back to trial, but it, and it looks like he's going to spend 
many years in jail for the murder of his wife. But in this country, he will not be executed for his wife's death or for the death of his unborn baby, though the scripture clearly requires it. What is it that's in a person that commits that would commit murder in a fit of rage in one person in one situation and that would would commit murder in another situation to hide adultery? Well, to look at the first man, you, you probably wouldn't be so surprised. But in the second, you'd be shocked. But as different as both of these men appeared on the surface, what was in both men is in us all. Apart from God's grace, we all have the capacity to commit murder. And we have all committed murder according to God's moral standard. The Lord was very clear on this in the Sermon on the Mount. Please turn with with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. It's also there on the cover of your bulletin. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus goes on to say, if, if, if you realize that someone has something against you, the, the responsibility is yours to go and to deal with it before you pretend to go and worship God. Jesus is here revealing what the moral law really means. He's saying that, is that is sinful murder is in the same category, sorry, sinful anger is in the same category as murder. Envy and covetousness are going to be included here as well. We're going to talk about that more when we get to the 10th commandment. But whenever you are sinfully angry with someone, whenever you consider vengeance against someone, whenever you insult them, gossip about them, slander them, or look down on them in any way, you are committing murder. Let alone when you strike someone or otherwise intentionally injure them. When was the last time that you were sinfully angry with someone? At work or or school last week? As you were getting ready for church or, or, or driving to church this morning? When was the last time you were irritated by someone? When was the last time that you spoke ill of someone, either to their face or behind their back? When was the last time that you fired off a nasty email or Facebook comment? When was the last time you harbored unforgiveness against someone? It's all murder. It's all murder. And these are classified as sins of murder against the body. But whether the murder is committed by the hand or by the heart or by the tongue or by your computer keyboard, it's all murder. No one can make you angry. Not a bad driver. Not disobedient kids. Not a selfish boss or an unfair, uh, a selfish spouse or an unfair boss. Sinful people tend to respond sinfully to being sinned against. But you know that sinful anger in the life of a Christian, can actually be your friend. 
Now let me explain what I mean by that. The anger itself is bad. But sinful anger can be a very good spiritual barometer because it, it serves to reveal idols in your heart, things that you're willing to sin to get or sin if you don't get. If you're getting angry at someone, it's because they are standing in the way of your idol. So let that anger be a cause for you to, to turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Again from Thomas Cole Cahoon. When the Lord forbids us to kill, he forbids us also to strike or wound our neighbor or to harbor malice and revenge against him. Violence, hatred, anger, and even irritation become more heinous to us when we see them as the Lord understands them. When we understand that they are in the same category as murder. And so see your anger for what it is. Confess it to God. Repent of it. And ask God's help for you to overcome it. But murder that comes from sinful anger is not the only kind of murder of the body. Abortion. The killing of an unborn baby is also murder. Abortion rates in Canada are statistically similar to those of, of other Western countries. There's around 100,000 babies killed every year in this country. Around a million annually in the United States, because, and they have 10 times our population, so the, the numbers are similar. There are 56 million babies killed each year around the world. The same number as the number of people who died in all of World War II. 1.5 billion babies have been killed since 1980. And it's not only babies in the womb who are at risk from legalized murder, but the elderly and the infirm as well. Euthanasia is increasingly practiced in this country and around the world. That The Netherlands legalized assisted suicide in 2001 was the first country to legalize suicide. And as the inevitable, this has resulted in coercion and involuntary euthanasia. The same is going to happen here if it's not already. All of this is murder, whether it's in the first stages of life or the later stages. It's at, in this case, at the hands of those who have sworn an oath to help and not to harm. Now when it comes to, to assisted suicide or, or euthanasia, I'm not saying that prolonging life is always a good thing. Providing food and water is necessary. But beyond that, doctors are not required to use extraordinary means to keep someone alive. Choosing to terminate medical treatment is not the same thing as choosing to terminate someone's life. There's a massive difference between ending life support and ending life. Murder of the body, though, does not just include assisted suicide. It includes suicide in general. Suicide is self-murder. Now, I don't pretend to know what circumstances some people face in their lives, and in, but in some cases, suicide might feel to people like it is the only way out. But Scripture says otherwise. Suicide is a sinful choice. 
And it would certainly be a fearful thing to enter into the presence of the Lord in the very act of sinning. But I don't want to say that those who commit suicide cannot be forgiven for that because they have no, no chance to repent. Any more than I would say that, that if someone turned to look lustfully at a woman and then walked into the path of a bus and was killed, that he couldn't be forgiven because he had not repented. Just because someone does not have the opportunity to repent does not mean that they cannot be saved. Now, there are several suicides in Scripture, and they're pretty much always presented in a negative light. With the most, with the most notorious suicides, one is in hell, and the other likely in hell. Judas is in hell. Because Jesus called him the son of destruction, John 17, 12, and pronounced woe on him and said it would have been better if he had never been born in Matthew 26, 24. King Saul is likely in hell because the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him and had, and had sent a harmful spirit to torment him, 1 Samuel 16, 14. But no one is condemned directly because of suicide. People are in hell because of the rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In the book of Judges, we read that Samson committed suicide, but this seemed to be actually an act of judgment against the Philistines, and, and Samuel is indeed listed, listed in the Hebrews Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11.32. I need to say this very clearly. If someone that you know is contemplating suicide, pray earnestly and point him or her to the gospel. And seek wise and godly help in ministering to them. So we have these, these cases of, of intentional murder of the body, but murder of the body can also be done unintentionally through negligent homicide. Under Israel's civil law, people were required to build a parapet around the flat roofs of their houses so that someone would not fall off and, and be injured or killed. Deuteronomy 22.8. And failure to, do, excuse me, failure to do this was a fracture of the Sixth Commandment. Similarly, if, if someone had an ox that was, was, had been prone to gore people in the past and they, they failed to keep that ox contained and it gored someone to death, the owner of that ox would face capital punishment also as a fracture of the Sixth Commandment, Exodus 21, 28, and 29. Now, I don't think anybody here has an ox. But a modern application of this would be that if you had a dog that is known to be aggressive and you don't keep it under control, you are breaking this commandment. But there's other forms of negligence that are considered murder against the body as well. Maybe these are ones you haven't considered. The, the, the failure to care, to care for your own health is self-murder. Gluttony is almost acceptable in Christian circles. Food and fellowship often go hand in hand. But the question is, are you eating to excess? Excessive drinking is also in view here. Smoking is deadly. Cigarette packages have graphic photos showing the harm they cause. And what about extreme sports? People who are intentionally putting their lives in jeopardy for the sake of mere 
thrills. All of these things are considered under the direction of the sixth commandment. Now, in the application of these things, we have to be very careful here not to, to lay down our standards for other people. But for our own sake and for the sake of our families, we need to be intentional in seeking to protect our health. Dutch theologian Joachim Duma says that, that our health is a priceless possession that must be protected wherever possible. Your health is a priceless possession. It is a gift to you from God. Your life is to be used for the glory of God. Everything you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, is for the glory of God. And, and in order to be able to, to do that rightly, you need to care for your body. Well, how are you doing so far? But before we get to the, the positive duty that's required, we also need to consider not just murder of the body, but murder of the soul. Quickly, people murder their own souls by walking in unrepentant sin and by rejecting the gospel. This is self-murder of your own soul. People murder the souls from others by provoking them to wrath, by unbiblical counsel, by being a bad example, and by unwillingness to share the gospel. This is murder of another person's soul. And so all of these things, Murder of the bodies of others, murder of your own body, murder of your own soul, murder of the souls of others are all prohibited by the sixth commandment. But not doing these things is not enough. Keeping the sixth commandment is not just a matter of not doing what's forbidden. There are positive duties required as well. So let's look at these. The, the, some of the positive duties that are required in the sixth commandment. The, the positive duty is implied in the command that you should do all the good that you can for yourself and others. Again, it's not good enough to avoid harming yourself and others. You must do all the good that is within your power by God's grace. So obedience to this commandment means seeking to preserve life, body, and soul. Human beings have their value in that they're made in the image of God. After making all the animals, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 1.26. Well, what does it mean that man is made in the image of God? It means that, that man is, is created to, to reflect God like a mirror, to reflect God's communicable attributes, his holiness, his goodness, love, and so on. And so we are also to represent God as an ambassador represents his country when he's in a foreign nation. But we understand that because of the fall, the image of God in man has been corrupted. As image bearers, we are also worshipers. Now, I, I never considered this before last week, but another uh, Dutch theologian, J.L. Kuhl, said that, that a person may not be killed for this reason, that he is either actually or potentially someone who declares God's praise and therefore anybody who kills another person thereby robs God. Now I want to spend some more time meditating on this in, in my own time, but, but, but he's saying here that, that your ultimate value is as a worshiper of God either in potentiality or in actuality. 
Now this makes sense, doesn't it, in light of the, the first commandment to, to worship God. It's also reflected in the, the first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so if you rob someone or rob yourself of life, of a life that is meant to be lived for the worship of God, you're actually robbing God of the worship that He deserves. And so because of the image of God on man, we uphold the sanctity of life. In fact, the ground for capital punishment for, for killing someone who is a murderer is because human beings are made in the image of God. Remember this from, from the Noahic Covenant in Genesis 9 verses 5 and 6. So from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So do you see that there? The murderer's life is forfeit because man is made in the image of God. Exodus 21, 12 says, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Now there is exception made for for accidental homicide again not negligent homicide but when someone dies accidentally but but murder in, in this case first degree murder warrants the death penalty now we do not have the right as individuals to take justice into our own hands it is the state who has given the mandate to bear the sword this principle is picked up in the new testament in romans 13 4 for example where we're told that the civil authority does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of god an avenger who carries out god's wrath on the wrongdoer now many people including some christians disagree with the death penalty on the basis of their understanding of the sanctity of human life. But again, it's because of the sanctity of human life that murder requires the death penalty. Again, from Dutch theologian Joachim Duma, the sword exists not only to strike, but also to prevent another from striking. Thomas Watson says that if a felon commits six murders, the judge may be said to be guilty of five of them because he did not execute the felon for his first offense. So then a, a judge who fails to require the death penalty for murder and a legal system that allow it is also guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. The execution of a murderer is not murder, but justice. And when we're talking about civil government and, and bearing the sword, it's, it's necessary, I think, to say a few words here about war. Just war is not forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. It is, it is ex expressly unlawful killing that is, is considered there. In fact, war is, is sometimes required by the Sixth Commandment. So we need to ask the question then, what, what would make a war just? Augustine is considered to be the founder of just war theory. The, the principles that, that, he, that he wrote down were, were long considered to be appropriate guidelines for Western countries in the waging of war. And there's, there's two elements that, that, that Augustine discussed. Jus ad bellum, which is, is Latin for the right to go to war, and jus in bello, right conduct in war. Now the right to go to war includes four elements. Just authority, just cause, just right intention, and only as a last resort. Now the right conduct in war is, is governed by the proportionate use of force, 
discrimination between combatants and civilians, and freedom from responsibility for unintended consequences. I wrote a paper when I was in seminary applying just war theory to the second Iraq war. I'd be happy to talk with you about it later if you have any questions, but, but I concluded that apart from a few isolated incidents, the second Iraq war was fought according to right conduct. However, the reasons for going to war were not just, so that this was therefore an unjust war. And for comparison, I looked at World War II. I think everyone would agree that, that for the, the Allies to enter World War II was, was just. There was, there was just means, or just reason for entering the war. But as you begin to, to research some of the things that took place during the war, you can see that although many battles were fought according to, to, uh, to just means, there were many tactics that were used by the Allies that were far from just, including the, res the relentless bombing of Dresden, the intentional firebombing of civilians in Tokyo, and the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was not just. This was murder according to the Sixth Commandment. Now, we expect governments to uphold the moral law, but quite often they don't. And one of the responsibilities that, that we have as Christians is to speak for the unborn. It's part of the positive requirement of this law. We are to open our mouths, to judge righteously, to defend the rights of the poor and the needy, Proverbs 31.9. So, so as our church engages in pro-life ministry, we are upholding the requirements of the Sixth Commandment. German churches are judged for their failure to stand against the Holocaust. Will we be judged if we fail to stand against abortion, a Holocaust in our time? How often do you pray for an end to abortion? This is something that you are to do as part of obedience to the Sixth Commandment. There's other things that you can do as well. You can go out on the sidewalk. You can talk to your coworkers. You can write a letter to your MP. You can talk to someone who has had an abortion and proclaim the gospel to them. And again, we need to think about caring for our lives as part of the duty that is commanded here. It's not just the lives of others, but our own lives. Not only are we to avoid those things that are unhealthy, but we are also to seek out that which is healthy. And we need to be careful in this because there, there are some in our culture who are absolutely obsessed. They, they worship their health. That is not what I'm talking about here. You need to figure out what's appropriate for you and your family. But without putting your, your standards on somebody else. But think about it intentionally. What is it like for me and for my family to pursue a healthy lifestyle? This is part of the Sixth Commandment. Eat well. Eat balanced meals. Get enough sleep. Seek proper medical treatment when you're sick. Get regular exercise. That's actually commanded under this, under this commandment. In, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, Paul says that bodily, bodily exercise is of some value. Now, granted, it is little value, he says, compared to godliness, but you need to remember that this, this instruction was given in a culture where people were far more physically active than we are today. They walked most places. They, they hunted, fished, and farmed for their food. They chopped firewood to cook their meals. So, so what, what could you do in order to help promote the, the health of your family? It also involves caring for the health of others. 
Repeatedly in the scriptures, we're called to care for the needy. In James 2, 15 to 17, we're warned explicitly, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of, them, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the needs, the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Similarly, 1 John 3, 17 to 18, that Jeremy read for us earlier, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. I think the picture is becoming clearer here. This commandment is about love. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. This, the focus is in the second table of the laws we talked about is on neighbor love. The focus of the first commandments was on love for God. The last six is on love for people. But as we just saw, love for people is not separated from love for God. We love others out of our love for God. We love others because we love God. 1 John 4.21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. When Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment in the law? He replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And love for God doesn't just mean loving one's brother. It, it doesn't just mean loving one's neighbor. It means even loving one's enemy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Again, love for others is linked with love for God. Now we've just looked at a lengthy description, a discussion of what is required in this commandment. We realize that we all fall short of what God requires in his moral law. But I want to talk to you for a moment as your pastor about what I see in this church family. I mentioned it briefly in, in our pastoral prayer. I see the love of God in this church. I see you loving each other. I see you reaching out to serve and to help one another. People who, who otherwise you probably would never even meet outside the church. This was, was testified, as I said, at camp, our, our speaker, Brian Borgman, saw the same thing. And, and his wife said, you have something very special going on here. God is doing something special. He is enabling you to love one another so that you are proving yourselves to be sons and daughters of God as you're following in the footsteps of Jesus, seeking to love God and love other people. You are reflecting Christ. You are imaging Christ to the world. Now, I know Christmas is not for a while yet, but I, I want to quote uh, briefly, Hark the Herald Angels Sing by Charles Wesley. Adam's likeness, Lord efface, 
Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Brothers and sisters, I am seeing in you the likeness of God. I'm seeing the, the, the effacement or the, the Adam's image being erased and God's image being put in its place. And this is, does not originate with you. It originates with God and he is glorified in you. Be encouraged. But let's not get caught up in patting ourselves on our backs because we need to understand that we still fall short of what God requires. That, that we still need to continually seek to walk in repentance and faith, to, to ask God's help in, 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 in growing in this and to, to continue to, to reach out to, to love others and to love others who are, are, are not exactly like us or maybe don't even have the same doctrinal formula formulations as us. Maybe even people in, in other churches. The reality is that none of us have ever loved others as we are commanded because none of us have ever loved God as we are commanded. And it's coming back to this, this first indictment that we're all murderers according to the righteous requirement of the law. And the only hope for convicted murderers is that they throw themselves on the mercy of the judge. And in our case, thank God that the judge is merciful for the judge is God himself. God will have mercy on those who turn to him in repentance and faith. But God doesn't just forgive murderers because it's what he does. We need to, we need to ask the question, there's a the tension here. How can a, a just God Forgive a guilty murderer. He does so by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Romans 8.34 God condemned his own Holy Son to the death penalty in the place of murderers like you and me. Now there may be people here who do not yet know Christ as Lord and Savior. Do not murder your own soul by rejecting the gospel. Those who are believers, do not murder the souls of others by withholding the gospel from them. Embrace the gospel out of love for God. Proclaim the gospel out of love for him and love for others. Lay hold of the means of grace that God has provided, especially the reading of scripture, prayer, and Christian fellowship. Walk in love with your brothers and sisters who have been purchased out of the love of God. And hold out that love to them for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
that though we committed murder in our hearts every day, and we confess we still too easily commit murder in our hearts. Lord, we praise you that your grace is greater than our sin. We praise you that you have held out your mercy to us by withholding mercy from your son. As he died in our place, as he died the death that we deserve to die. And as he lived the life that we have never lived, help us, Lord, we pray, to continue to look to his example and to continue to be conformed into his image through the work of your Holy Spirit and our diligent practice of the means of grace that you provided. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.